Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Hope you're all having a wonderful Monday. Um, we're having a great summer for a change. And uh, today we would like to talk about um, assertive community treatment. And the reason um, I think this is important for us to talk about is, is, is twofold. One is that research shows that people who have, who are involved with in treatment for three to six months had better outcomes than, than people who have a single episode of care. Um, I also think it's important to talk about assertive community treatment because of what's going on with our whole health care reform. We spend so much money on inpatient treatment and we spend very little money on community-based treatment, which is really what people need in order to stay healthy and well. And I, I'm very happy to introduce our guest today, someone I've known for a long time. Um, our guest is Judy Magnan, who trains the registered nurse at New Hampshire Hospital School of Nursing, and she received her bachelor's degree from New England College. Judy became board certified in psychiatric and mental health nursing in 1985. She became a licensed addiction counselor in the state of New Hampshire in 1993, and she's also an addiction counselor and a licensed nurse in Florida. She has over 40 years in the experience in the field of mental health and over 20 years experience in the um, field of addictions. She has worked in a variety of settings, including um, New Hampshire State Hospital, uh, community mental health centers, um, a, a VA hospital, and she was also um, in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps during the Vietnam era. Um, she served in multiple locations as an Army nurse as well. She has presented on co-occurring disorders and ACT teams around the country. She is currently the program director of Westbridge South in Brooksville, Florida, and Judy has started a number of ACT teams, and I don't know anybody who's uh, better qualified to talk about our subject today than Judy. Um, welcome, Judy. Oh, thank you, Mary, so much for having me on your show today. Um, um, well, I guess. Oh, sorry, Mary. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, you know, uh, talking about being a nurse in New Hampshire Hospital is a wonderful introduction to uh, where we started with ACT teams. When I started training in New Hampshire Hospital, there was 2,700 patients. And in the 70s, you know, the, the idea was is to have people living in the community and not living years in the state hospital. And in 1972, when with, uh, some staff in Wisconsin realized that putting somebody into the community with no community resources and having very little experience around, uh, you know, after years in a hospital, well, how do I grocery shop, um, how do I cook, you know, how do you do laundry, how do you partner with a primary care doctor, etc. that they developed the first ACT teams, assertive community treatment teams. And because there wasn't a high enough level of care in the community, they developed these teams that were mental health teams. 
And Mary, as I'm speaking, if you have questions to me, please interrupt me. So the mental health teams were um, staffed with social workers, care managers, nurse, psychiatrists, who all were trained to work in the community to provide basic living skills, education and support, how to use community resources, and the whole idea was to, to prevent them from going back into the hospital. Because that's exactly what happened without the resources. They were just going back and forth. So the whole idea of the team was to help decrease the symptoms, help them adjust to the community, and live with whatever symptoms that they have while having healthy relationships, how, how can they work, have hobbies, so that their whole scope and quality of life was improved. The you know, I, I think that, that when, when you're talking about um, 1972, we know that's when, right around the time that um, Senator Harold Hughes developed the legislature that created um, the National Institute of Drug Abuse and National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, as well as SAMHSA. And, you know, I think this is just kind of a great illustration of how we have a government policy that sounds great at the higher level. We're going to deinstitutionalize people, but at the community level, there's absolutely no preparation. And then the people that they're trying to emancipate, if you will, are ultimately the people that suffer because um, untreated people with mental illness who are left to their own devices in the community not only don't have those skills, but they're also victimized in multiple areas. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, being a psychiatric nurse for those many years, I certainly uh, lived through that time. And and I did, you know, as you said, I worked uh, inpatient for many years and saw the consequences of coming back and forth and back and forth and how debilitating that was, how devaluing that was. Uh, and that they got labeled chronically ill and that they could never get better, you know, all the negative consequences. And once um, I had the opportunity to step out into the community, do a variety of other things, and then to be in the place where um, uh, uh, Dr. Robert Drake out of Dartmouth, when he was a psychiatrist in northern New Hampshire and was working with people who experienced schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorder, who had been in and out of hospitals, who also were drinking or drugging. And he would, he would send, um, you know, because as mental health providers, we weren't trained in addictions back then, and he would send them to uh, substance abuse providers Substance abuse providers would look at their mental health illness, not know what to do, and send them back to the, to Dr. Drake and his team. And they would get shuffled back and forth, and they were um, getting lost in the cracks and dying. And so Dr. Drake said, you know, this makes no sense. We as mental health providers have to figure this out. How can we treat both at the same time? So he looked around at different models came across the ACT model out in Wisconsin and saw how effective it was there and um, set up a research 
project, uh, requesting seven of the mental health centers in New Hampshire to participate, which they agreed to. He obtained monies from uh, some federal money, some state money, and started this research project in 1989. Manchester Mental Health Center agreed, and I became the first acting leader for the research in 1990. So the question was, what intervention works best? A regular case management team where a, a, a provider has 30 to 50 individuals and they just link to services, or an ACT team, and New Hampshire called them continuous treatment teams. Um, you know, so a, a CPT is in mental health and substance abuse issues with full responsibility for the services. So that was his question. And then to make it clean, uh, he actually had the individuals who agreed to participate in the research, they were assigned a number. The number went into the computer, and the computer spit out which team did they go to, the regular case management team or the continuous treatment team. So it was kind of a blind study. So the teams were made up of, again, a psychiatrist, a nurse, social workers, case managers. And these teams did at least 75% of their work in the community. They addressed um, all of the um, you know, basic living skills, plugging them into uh, primary care. They would take them to the doctor's appointment, go in if the person was comfortable, make sure that the psychiatrist and the, the primary care doctor were talking to each other for consistency of care. These teams really worked with families and how uh, family work was so important and that the idea of these teams was to allow the family time to come back and be a parent or a sibling and not have to be the care manager, not to have to pay uh, to, for all the care, um, et cetera. So how were they, they trained yeah. in addiction, Judy? How was the staff trained in addiction? Oh, we were very lucky in New Hampshire. Um, uh, Dr. Drake and his team brought in specialists in mental health and substance abuse. Um, we had uh, people provide, uh, people such as Ken Minkoff came in and uh, uh, Boston University. So we were trained of people in the addictions world. Uh, we went to a lot of the addictions training. So there was, it was very, very intensive, but the, still it was, the, part of the question was how, how do you treat both mental illness and substance abuse? Because what might work if you only have the addictions might not work as well if you have um, your brain chemistry being out of balance. And so it really took time. And once the training uh, happened so we understood the addictions piece then it was how to blend it in together uh, and we did uh, groups um, that addressed substance abuse 
issues and mental health at the same time. There was one-to-one interventions. Uh, there was um, support. It was all stage-wise treatment. And stage-wise treatment meaning that we... We'll come right back um, after this commercial and we'll talk about stage-wise treatment. Um, and if you have any questions about assertive community treatment or if you had experience with it, um, please give us a call. And we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Judy Magden, and we're talking about assertive community treatment, which is an evidence-based practice that supports individuals' recovery in their community, um, and it's particularly effective with people that have severe and persistent mental illness and co-occurring substance use disorders. And in our last segment, before we went to commercial, Judy was talking to us about stage-based treatment. And for our listeners who may not understand what that means, could you explain it for us? Certainly. Um, What uh, Dr. Drake and his team came up with was um, four, four stages. The beginning stage, as the person would start on the team, would be what we called an engagement phase. And that basically was helping the person believe that the agency or or our CTT team had something that was desirable to offer them. Example, um, they, they were out in the communities that might be assisting them to find uh, safe, affordable housing. Uh, they may need Social Security benefits. 
they may need help with uh, social skills. You know, how do, how do I connect with, with other people in the community? Um, I want to get a job. How does one do that? I want to go back to school. How does that happen? Uh, and then, again, working with the family to provide education and support. So that was the beginning step as they started the journey with us. Then the second stage was persuasion. And, again, and so in this stage, we aren't um, coming at them full tilt with treatment. You know, you, you, you have to come into the office for, for 50 minutes, sit with me, and then I'll see you next week. So there was not the, the usual style of intervention. The beginning stage was just, you know, saying, hi, come on in, how can I help you? So once they were comfortable with us and, and there was that, that security and some trust, then it was the persuasion stage. And that was convincing them that long-term abstinent-orientated treatment might be helpful to them. So in this stage, that was staff thinking. And at first, that's you know, in the beginning of our, our, our learning as staff was, you know, we were thinking, okay, you know, abstinence is absolutely the beginning. Well, over the, the several years, we, we figured out that didn't work, that in this stage, we could think about them being abstinent, but really in the beginning is uh, what we call now harm reduction. If they're drinking a gallon of whiskey a day, well, you know, maybe three quarters, you know, is a step, and then a half is a step, etc. So the idea was to... To, to help them join us um, on the journey. And in the addictions world and in 12-step programs, you hear the word um, uh, denial. And what we learned about that was that that kind of confronting you're in denial didn't work with this population. And that... Um, as staff, what we learned was they didn't raise their hand in the eighth grade and say, when I grow up, you know, I, I want to have a major mental illness, I want to have an addiction, and I want to decrease my risk of having a spouse, children, work, etc. because these were the cost to having some of these, these illnesses. So... It really was the disbelief. How could this happen to me? And that's, uh, I think, a, an ACT team is so critical when you understand those pieces that, of what that person has experienced. So this stage was pers- persuading them based on our understanding that they were in, the, in disbelief. And again, working with the family, that the family was such a key component. And then once they would partner with us and they would begin to get to the point where, you know, maybe I do have a mental health issue and, gee, maybe I do have a problem with with using uh, alcohol or drugs, then it went into active treatment. And this is where we would really help them develop um, the belief systems and the skills necessary to... Um, step into sobriety and to um, help them 
get their psychiatric um, issues uh, stable. And what we did at that point was we we did behavioral interventions, uh, a lot of education, uh, a lot of the folks because of their alcohol and drug use would have um, physical health issues, so we would get those um, addressed. Uh, again, working with families or significant others, that we would we did a lot of case management, uh, going into their homes, being a guest in their home, um, helping them to get to the grocery store. How do you cook? Um, helping them find sober networks out there, um, using vocational uh, community resources, stepping back into school and supporting them in, in a school setting, using detox. Uh, you know, we saw certainly relapses, and that's part of the journey of recovery. So if they needed a detox unit, um, getting them into 12-step. 12-step um, is such a valuable tool and helping them learn about what's, what's the social environment when you go into uh, a 12-step meeting for the first time. What's expected of you? Um, what is that going to look like? How can we partner with you to get you through a 12-step meeting? What is the big book, et cetera. So we did a lot of work before they made that first step um, into a 12-step meeting. We did a lot of groups, uh, again, working with the family, making sure the family understood that this wasn't their fault, that these illnesses are biological in nature. So many times, it was so sad because so many families, even today, some providers will tell them, this is your fault. You know, it was your parenting. It was uh, something that you did. And how tragic that is for a family to hear. And we certainly did a lot of work with helping families understand, just like diabetes, just like cancer, this isn't your fault. There is treatment, and we're here to support you and your loved one through this. And then the... the um, the, kind of the end of the journey was uh, relapse prevention skills, and that was helping them, again, to maintain the sobriety that they have, the stability, um, helping them to understand what early warning signs were, what their trigger list were, um, matching plans for each little trigger, uh, again, supporting them through uh, individual treatment and uh, group interventions, and if I might tell, share a story, one of the gentlemen that we had uh, took us a couple of years to go through these um, steps, and one of the things that he had to, to do was he literally took out a map of Manchester, and he planned the streets that he would walk to certain places to avoid the, the areas where he would use, where his drug dealers lived, where people that would give him alcohol and drugs lived, and that was literally one of the plans that he came up with to uh, help him maintain sobriety. You know, everything you're talking about is, um, it's amazing 
Um, and I know the research uh, was well received. What what was it like for the clients who, when they first came into this, this was as radical for them as it was for for you. What was it like for them? Oh, absolutely. To have to have um, you know a case manager or a nurse or the psychiatrist come and be a guest in their home that. That took a, a while uh, for them to be comfortable, but what we experienced as staff is for the first time they would share what their experiences were or what what symptoms they might have been experiencing that they had, had never told anybody. One of the, the gentlemen that I had 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 been diagnosed with bipolar disorder 12 years before he moved to Manchester. And he had been, he had just come from Alaska living in a boat in Alaska. And the stories were incredible. But when he came in, and one of the first questions I asked him was, So, how much do you use alcohol or drugs on a daily basis? And he told me. And after he shared it with me, he said, You know, he said, In 12 years, you're the first person in the mental health field that has ever asked me that question. So wow. it was, yeah, it was so that it was that kind of experiences where all of a sudden we as mental health providers were asking them that question. And of course they were like, well, what difference does that make? Which brings up a memory. You know, when, when we started the CTT and, and Dr. Drake, you know, we all were of that belief that well, people who experience mental health should be able to drink socially. Well, about a year and a half into the study, Bob pulled all the, the, the team leaders together in a meeting in Concord, New Hampshire, in his office and said, you know, we've come to realize a teaspoon a year is too much for somebody who has uh, a, a brain chemistry imbalance that the areas of the brain that alcohol and drug goes to is the same area that uh, the mental illness happens in so that it made everything worse. And, and all of the consequences, which we can talk about after commercial break and how, how that impacted them. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Judy about assertive community treatment. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately 1 in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Terry Aranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the bride's future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back, everyone. I hope you're enjoying today's show. I think one of the disclaimers I, I should make about assertive community treatment is that the, the initial research was done through grants, and then in order to provide that after the grant funding left, there had to be a waiver in Medicaid uh, in order for the state to get reimbursed. These are not traditional services that are reimbursed through Medicaid or Medicare or most insurances. So if any of you are out there and thinking, wow, this sounds great, I want my local community to do this, you you really need to research what is being reimbursed for by this by the uh, public and private uh, providers, be it Medicaid, Medicare, or your private insurance. Um, the, the sad thing is, is that what everything Judy's describing has been proven to work. It's, it's, um, much more cost effective than a than a hospital stay, but um, it's it hasn't really taken off as a um, reimbursable service. Um, Judy, before we were we went to break, you were talking about some of the consequences of for for the participants um, in the study. Yes, what we discovered when we really looked at. Um, using alcohol or drugs when you have a psychiatric illness, it takes a very small amount to impact the person. Example, I've had a number of uh, folks that I've worked with say to me, gee, I, I only smoked one joint and I wound up in the inpatient unit for three days. You know, I only had three or four drinks, and I've, I've lost my job. Um, I had three or four drinks, and I became so unstable uh, that, you know, I lost my relationship. I've lost my housing. And that's what we saw compared to somebody who might have uh, an, an addiction who can work uh, five days 
uh, a week, you know, can maintain a, a, a marriage and, and parenting for years. For the, for the folks who have the co-occurring disorders, that didn't happen. That there were so many times that they wound up alone. Um, the job that I had before I came to Westbridge, I was I did a five-year grant, SAMHSA grant, uh, doing an ACT team to work with the homeless population who had a major psychiatric illness and substance abuse issues. And after doing ACT services, and I thought, well, you know, this is going to be the same. The difference for them was their trauma histories were were some of them were undescribable and some of them had 20 years in the woods throughout this country and not not a Vietnam veteran actually none of the gentlemen that or, or women that I worked with had been in Vietnam but their trauma histories had resulted in the genetic issues of course resulting in psychiatric issues and drinking. As I was saying, this one gentleman, 20 years in the woods and had had treatment off and on, he would come in to, uh, to see us at times, be using, be very intimidating. Everyone was very afraid of him. Uh, it took us about two years for him to build up enough trust that he would let us come to the camp where he he was living and to to start the journey. When I left at the end of the five years, he had been working full-time as a peer support in the the mental health drop-in center, had his own apartment, was writing a book, was active in 12-step programs, and had uh, three years of sobriety. You know, that's that's just a miracle, you know, and and, and what you're talking about is is the time and the patience that we need to invest. And these aren't complicated interventions, you know. It's just um, convincing people that, you know, these folks are worth the time and the investment. Oftentimes, these are the throwaway people, you know. Most of our mentally ill now are open are ending up in jail because there isn't anywhere else for them to go and they don't get the level of treatment they need in the community because we don't have funding for it. And then they end up like this man who may be mentally ill and intoxicated and very scary and then ends up in jail. And, um, you know, the, the amazing results that you see are, um, I don't know, they're just heartwarming. Yes. Well, and it's, you know the all the act teams that we did in New Hampshire, the act teams in Florida. It was kind of the same thing. And in response to a hospital situation, uh, Florida has made a commitment to do act teams. And in Florida, they're called FACT teams, Florida Assertive Community Treatment Teams, and there are around thirty of them. Many communities. Uh, counties have them, and I, I did the North Lee FAC team and the Charlotte County FAC team before I did the homeless grant. And it was interesting because the, it was the same dynamics, 
the same interventions with the same outcomes, that people who had both issues with this model of care being, as you said, being patient with them, helping them to feel that they deserve it, and especially the women, uh, so many of them had been um, experienced sexual abuse and other traumas, and you could spend the first two years helping them come to believe that they deserve goodness in their life, and just doing that and helping them to feel valued. You, know, you care enough about me to come to my home, you know, 11 days in a row. And we had that experience. One of the nurses would go, she went 11 days in a row and asked her to, to come in and partner to begin her treatment plan. And she finally just said, you're not going to give up, are you? And the nurse said, no. And she said, all right. And she started the journey. So those, that kind of persistent and patience and the key for staff was to help them understand what, you know, that, that these illnesses are biological, uh, that they're treatable, that people can get better. And on an ACT team, when, you, when, when staff would see one of these success stories, they would just spread the word and, and, and just, you know, it was self-fulfilling. And I, I've, had, I've had staff leave an ACT team because of, you know, family issues, they had to move to a different state or whatever, retirement, sob at their going away party that they did not want to leave because this model was so incredibly effective and that you touched people's lives. I think that it takes a special type of person to work on an ACT team because like our community in general, not everyone values the side-by-side work or the community work because most of us are trained to be a nurse in a hospital, a counselor in a mental health center, have a private practice where you have your degrees on the wall and, you know, um, so, so I think it really takes a special person to do this. Well, it was scary. I mean, when I stepped out of the inpatient unit after 17 years of a variety of inpatients and stepped out into the community um, managing a halfway house, uh, it was scary. It took me a while. And, and then, you know, being a case manager for a while and stepping into the ACT teams. But once being on an ACT team and you saw how people got better, uh, you know, with this model, it was it took my husband eight years to get me to move from New Hampshire to Florida, and then I was so excited when I discovered they would do an act teams in Florida than I was in Seventh Heaven. And it was interesting when Bob Drake looked at the outcomes the at the three-year mark in New Hampshire in the study, he was getting a little nervous because it didn't look too much different between the regular case management. Then after that, what happened is the regular case management model became the bell curve. Things kind of went downhill, whereas the ACT teams kept going. People kept getting better and better. The, the sobriety, you know, people would get three, four, five, six, eight years of sobriety. People would be back to work. They would have... Um, they would be married. They would have uh, children. I mean, we, we saw that happen. Families got reunited together so that the outcomes were so dramatic on all seven teams 
And since then, this has been duplicated over a hundred times, and the outcomes are consistent with with this model. Um, well, Mary, as you and you and I know, you know, you and I got to go to London in 2000 and do training on on uh, stages of change, and that they're doing this model now in in uh, England, uh, Australia. Uh, Bob Drake has presented in China and around the world, and that this model uh, can be duplicated and and work well. And Florida saw the same uh, outcome. One of the interesting things that has happened because of Bob Drake's work is that they the original ACT model was designed with mental health in mind, and they have now re done the manual to include co-occurring disorder treatment because they realize it's kind of like, you know, being a nurse. Um, If somebody comes into the ER and they have two broken legs, well, gee, you want to treat both broken legs at the same time and you don't care which one got broke first. And we spent years in our profession trying to figure out, well, which came first, mental health or substance abuse? Well, what we learned on the ACT teams, it really makes no difference. Two broken legs, you know, you treat them at the same time. And what makes it a little harder when you're doing co-occurring treatment is that it isn't just tasks that you're doing, that you're having to think about um, a lot more skill-based, understanding stages of change, uh, understanding motivational interviewing, understanding cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's, there's a lot of, lot more clinical work, understanding, um, addictions, understanding group work, et cetera. So that, you know, overlaying those two, uh, adds a, adds a different flavor to a co-occurring team. And we'll be right back after this commercial for our last segment on assertive community treatment. Options. Answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? 
Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, we're talking about assertive community treatment as a very effective um, community intervention for people that have co-occurring um, major mental illness and substance use disorders. And, um, you know, everything that Judy's talking about, I've seen her do in action. And one of the things that's always impressed me the most about people who work on an assertive community treatment team is their flexibility and their responsiveness that those are two things that um, make a really effective assertive community treatment team. Yes, as I would keep saying on my teams is um, act. (laughs) What does an act team do? We have to act. (laughs) So it's not sitting in an office but going out and and doing whatever it takes to assist the person. Um, And is there... As a result of uh, Dr. Drake's research for the um, continuous treatment teams, that kind of spurned the development of the other evidence-based practices at Dartmouth, too, didn't it? Yes. Um, uh, After the three years, which was the initial study, uh, uh, Bob Drake went on to study he did a, did a similar research project on supported employment, and what he discovered through that research was the the idea, of course, that that we had as mental health providers was that somebody would have to be sober to get a job. Well, what he discovered was the opposite that if somebody was using and they found a job that they were really interested in, they would then stop using. They would then start picking up their medication and using their medication to keep them stable enough to show up at a job that they really liked. And that was one of the the most powerful, I think, pieces of that research because certainly, you know, we would say, oh, you know, they need to go into a sheltered workshop. Well, uh, you know, how many of them really wanted to go into a sheltered workshop where everybody in the room had a major psychiatric illness, and of course we treated them as if they couldn't work. And again, some of our beliefs, you know, impacted, I'm sure, how they functioned. So when the study came out, it was... Uh, again, a, a major revolution and, again, successful outcomes. And we see that today in, on the ACT team certainly support this, this uh, model. Uh, the other uh, project that he did was looking at 
the um, the importance and the power of having the family as part of the team. And he developed the family education and support. Uh, Kim User, his colleague, and Lindy Fox Smith uh, actually uh, wrote that whole manual. And, of course, we're using it at Westbridge and are blessed to have uh, Lindy partner with us and provide direct supervision. And, again, an incredible model because... As I mentioned earlier, families come to us with these beliefs. It must have been something I did uh, and wanting their loved one to be successful and not knowing where to go with it. Sometimes they don't know that there's medications that treat these illnesses. They don't know that people can get better. And some of the things that I've seen here uh, in Florida is because Florida had such an elder population that parents who are in their 70s and 80s have adult children living with them who are experiencing these illnesses and they don't know where to go. So it's wonderful that this, that, you know, Bob has developed this model so that families know, well, you know, um, how, how treatment is, is available to, to step into NAMI, that there are support groups out there, how to use Al-Anon, um, you know, what is substance abuse? How, if you have a mental illness, how does that substance use impact? What are some of the things that they as a family member can do to support a family? It might be uh, making sure they're not taking them on a trip that has, uh, a lot of alcohol, not have Thanksgiving. How can you change a Thanksgiving so that maybe, um, you know, there isn't alcohol on the table? Uh, so many small little things that family can do to support a person's recovery. Helping a family to learn early warning signs of both illnesses so that they can pick up the phone and call, uh, you know, an ACT team or a mental health provider and say, gee, I'm noticing this. Uh, you know, what do we need to do to intervene? Uh, what legal steps can happen, et cetera. So those are two of the things that Bob went on to, uh, to do that have really impacted um, mental health providers. The other interesting thing that has come out of this is that, I know in New Hampshire, and in Florida that they're looking at helping um, addiction counselors to begin to look at mental health and mental health as a biological illness and that it's like diabetes. If your blood sugar is 800, you might want to take your insulin and it doesn't impact your recovery from alcohol and drugs and helping the addiction folks support use of medications or recognizing that this person may need to see a psychiatrist or a mental health provider. And so there's been some good collaboration uh, between the addictions providers and the mental health providers now, and that, that's a big step. I think it's also um, to highlight what you were saying about the family. Um, Kim User's research has shown that when the families are involved, um, people stay 
sober longer, and they have a decreased uh, rate of hospitalization. And I know at Westbridge, we have much better outcomes when the family's involved and engaged. And, um, you know, I just can't underscore that enough that um, part of this research has shown that, but um, everybody wants to be connected to somebody. And, um, you know, that's a powerful fringe benefit of recovery for everyone that, the, the family gets their son or daughter back, and the son or daughter gets their family back. And I don't think there's been any greater reward that I've heard people talk about. Oh, absolutely, Mary. Absolutely. And I thank you for that triggers my memory that uh, one of the things that Bob talked about at the end of the three years was that of all of the interventions that we used, the key factor was the relationship with the team and and with individual staff members that if all all the fancy things we did, the best piece was building that core relationship and that connection. You know, that's I, I we've been doing some interviews here um with some of our participants that have a year or more recovery and one of the themes that I've read in, in the interviews is how um, the participants, our participants will say, you know, um, I really got to know the staff and um, even though I'm away from home, I still feel like I belong to some something and I didn't want to let them down. You know, when, when I thought about, when I get a craving, I think about that, oh, this will pass, but I don't want to let Kristen down or I don't want to let Jim down or I don't want to let Drew down. And that, and that power of that relationship is, is, uh, I think overlooked in so many ways. Oh, absolutely, and and that really hit home for me when I was working with the uh, the folks that were homeless and going into those camps, and that they didn't have any connection, and to have somebody hold out their hand time after time to say, you know, you're a value, and and it was so neat because the people that would show up, gifted writers gifted artists, gifted musicians, bright, bright people who, you know, just had gone down a path and, and to see them step out and, and take 20, set aside 20 years of their life based on relationships from an acting, you know, and say, this isn't, I don't want to go there again. This is who I want to be. Uh, was was just amazing, and to see them get into relationships, uh, you know, I mean, one of them, uh, you know, was married, and it, it was just so exciting to see, um, you know, who showed up, and and this this happened, you know, over the past twenty years, you know, you see this, so these are incredible well, I, models of care, and you know, when I think about the chronicity of mental illness. I think so much of it has been environmental. You know, when people were sheltered in state hospitals, I mean, it was a it was a total community. Everything was there that they possibly needed. So, so you didn't really have to develop new skills because everything was at your fingertips. And then when you got out into the community, you didn't have anything to support you. So you you were left to flounder and with assertive community treatment you can really see the difference of intensive support it really mitigates a lot of that chronicity that that we were taught to believe happens with people with major mental illness 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I guess if anybody's out there listening, um, go advocate for assertive community treatment teams in your community because if you have a son or daughter with a major mental illness and co-occurring substance use disorders, the sooner they get involved in treatment, especially assertive community treatment, um, the better the outcome and the less chronicity that will happen with your son or daughter or family member. Thank you again, and have a good week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.